As you can see from the, the title of my lesson, the theme of this passage, uh, and also the theme of this passage, my goal for this morning is for us to be reminded of God's goodness, His goodness to us. Um, I've been told that uh, embedded in a lesson, there's usually four lessons. Uh, there's the one that the speaker diligently prepares for. There's the one that he actually presents. There's the one that the audience actually hears. There's the one that's reported about in the press or they talk about the next day. And there are often times where not, one for, uh, not any one of those four, there's a connection. So I hope that's not the case today. I hope it all flows. So I need for you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. And as you're turning there, and before we take a look at God's word, let me ask you this. How has God manifested his goodness to you in the last week or so? How has he shown to you his goodness in the last couple of weeks? I'm looking for a response. I'm a school teacher. Whenever I ask a question, if I don't get anything, I just wait until someone talks. So. How has God manifested his goodness to you in the last couple of weeks? Letting you live. Yeah, every, every breath that we have is in the palm of his hand. The Brian's class. That's a good thing where we get to study God's word together. Yeah, amen. You're still walking. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, safety and travel. Absolutely. So, you know, Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology gives a definition of God's goodness, and it's this. It says, the goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. And a casual reading of this statement could lead one to believe that mankind, God's creation, is the one that decides what is worthy of approval. But that's not what, what Grudem is talking about here. What he's saying is that, that ultimately God's being and action are perfectly worthy of his own approval. Since God is perfect and we are not, only he can approve that which is worthy. God himself is the only one who is good. Therefore, he is the ultimate standard of what is good. So not only is God the only standard of that which is good, but God is also in the business of making his goodness known throughout his creation. Psalm 19 says this, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Every moment of every day, creation is shouting out to anyone who will listen. Creation is shouting out God's existence, his power, his wisdom, and his goodness. You know, as genuine believers, we're commanded to taste and see that the Lord is good. This psalm here, Psalm 34, it, it tells us we're commanded that we are to, to uh, uh, experience God's goodness. We are to recount his goodness. We are to stop and consider that the Lord is good. You know, as we come to our study in 2 Kings today, we're going to uh, witness God's goodness, his steadfast love, if you will, pictured for us, scattered throughout the different events recorded for us in this chapter. We're going to observe God's goodness manifested throughout the routine struggles of people living in a fallen world. And before we do that, pray with me. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you and we do acknowledge that you are good. You are a good God to us because you have revealed yourself through your word, 
and through your Son. And I pray this morning as we take a look at your word that we would uh, be rekindled in our hearts of how good you are to us. We ask this in the name of our Savior, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, point number one on your outline, the widow's oil. If you look at verse one, it says, it says, Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophet cried to Elisha. He says, Your servant, my God, is dead, and, and, and know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. You know, not much is known about this woman. Not much is known about her husband. Uh, we can surmise that, that she's had a hard life. Uh, we do know that her husband had been uh, in prophetic ministry and was most likely one of the 7,000 that we've read about earlier who did not bow his knee to Baal. And, and since he was a prophet, he, he presumably had undergone several waves of persecution uh, from the, the wicked hand of Queen Jezebel. Some Bible commentators believe that this prophet was Obadiah, but then again, that's just speculation. The, the family had fallen into debt, and according to the Mosaic law, creditors could enslave debtors and their children to work off the debt that they could not pay. The historian Joseph, uh, Josephus believed the reason that he was in debt was that he borrowed money to help feed his fellow prophets during that terror reign of Queen Jezebel. But we don't know. This woman was destitute, and she turns to the Lord for help. She turns to Elisha for help. And look what our text says, verse 2. Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house except for a jar of oil. And then Elisha said, Go borrow vessels at large for, for yourself and uh, from all your neighbors, even empty vessels. Do not get a few. And you shall go in and, and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour out into all the vessels, and you shall set aside what is full. So she went out. She went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons, and they were bringing the vessels to her, and, uh, and she poured. Then the vessels were, were full. She said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not one vessel more, and the oil stopped. And then she came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debt, and you and your sons can live off the rest. And so we see God's goodness just towards our daily needs. God's goodness towards our daily needs. God is concerned with our needs. In this passage, we're reminded of God's goodness, not because not only is he concerned with our needs, but he meets them. He provides what we need. And that's what we see here. When the widow needed help, she simply laid out her request before the Lord. And in answer to her plea for mercy, God provided for her sons and for herself in a miraculous way. Through Elisha, God tells this woman to go to her neighbors and, and collect as many empty jars as she can. And the widow demonstrates her faith in Yahweh by being obedient to the commands of Elisha here. She acted in faith. She was, she was acting in faith when she would go door to door to her neighbors and say, let me have your empty vessels. That's acting in faith. She acted in faith when, when uh, she did exactly what Elijah had commanded her to do. To quietly and privately fill those jars. It was an act of faith to pay off the debt first trusting that there would be enough left over for her and her sons to live from. The widow trusted in, in the goodness of God, and as she did, she found God to be trustworthy. And as believers, we're commanded to do the same thing. We're to trust in God's goodness, 
and to find him to be trustworthy to meet our daily needs. I need for you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 25, but I need for you to um, just follow along as I read. I know this is a familiar passage for most of you in here. It's just good to see it again and be reminded of it. Uh, we're in the middle of Jesus' greatest sermon, his Sermon on the Mount, and I'll be reading from the, the ESV. It says, therefore, verse 25, Matthew 6, 25, Therefore, tell, I tell you, Jesus speaking, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his, li uh, to his span of life? And, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God is so clothes the grass of the field, which, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And Jesus continues in 30, verse 31, and he says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all the things, uh, after all these things, and, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And then he goes on and gives us our command of what we're to do in 33. We are to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day of its own troubles. And if you go back to verse 25 in, in the ESV, it says, therefore, and I think in the, NS, uh, the New American Standard, it says, for this reason. Is that right? For this reason. In verse 25, when it says that, it's referring back to verse 24. And in verse 24, Jesus is declaring to the Christian that God is the Christian's only master. So, the lesson is, is that when we praetor, it's hard for you, hard for me to say, when we, when we set God apart and we praetor, thank you, thank you, golly, you know, I was telling Vikram when he was talking about these like Baal and things like that, that Vikram had a, a slight advantage over all of us because of his Indian accent, you know, I, sometimes I just, never mind, let's move on, <laughs> all right, so when we place God as our master and we are his slave, it demonstrates in our lives our trust in his goodness, that we are content with that. Our Christian contentment, our contentment in this life is found only in God and when he is our master and we choose to be his slave. The Apostle Paul said this this way in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in, I, I am. I know how to get along in humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. And in any and every circumstances, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both in having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The Apostle Paul is writing to the letter of Philippi here, and, and he's in prison as he writes this, this letter. And that word content, in this passage, it means to be self-sufficient or independent of circumstances around us. It means to be independent of, of uh, the conditions that surround us, the things that we're going through. The Apostle is aware of his situation. But he does not allow his situation to control his thinking. He's not mastered by his circumstances. 
He's mastered by his God. If we can improve our circumstances in, in fair and legitimate ways, then by all means, we need to do that. But we are not to be mastered by our circumstances. The Apostle Paul knew that the chief end of man is not to have his needs met, but to glorify God in everything forever. Because of that, he was satisfied in whatever God graciously granted him. So God is not aware, not only aware of our needs, in his goodness, he meets our needs. And as you turn back to 2 Kings, the second thing that we're reminded here is God's goodness towards widows and the fatherless. This woman comes to Elijah in all the grief and poverty and distress and loneliness and vulnerability of her widowhood. You know, all throughout the Bible, God displays his loving and tender heart for such people. The Old Testament tells us that in Exodus 22, it says that you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. Now look at verse 24. He says, in my wrath, uh, my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children will be fatherless. We really sense the Lord's tenderness and his, his love for these types of people. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, he says, for the Lord your God is, is the God of gods and the Lord of lords the great and mighty and awesome God who is not to be partial or take no bribes. And look at this, verse 18. He executes judges for the, uh, justice for the fatherless and the widow. In Psalm 65, 8, excuse me, 68, 5, the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows is God in his holy mountain. And then we learn in James our response. In James 1.27, it says that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our, our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. God cares for the widow. He cares for the, the fatherless. And he expects for us to do the same. I think we get a, a very clear picture of the heart of God when it comes to his concern and his goodness towards widows and towards the fatherless, when we see Jesus dying on the cross. As our Savior was taking on the punishment that we deserved, as he was bearing the full wrath of God in judgment for our sins, minutes before giving up his life, we're reminded in John's gospel that Jesus sees his mother and the disciple that he loved, and he says to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he says to the disciple, behold your mother. We get a sense of our Savior's love and compassion for his widowed mother in the midst of his own excruciating pain that was reflected on the cross, we see his love and concern for his own. So in, in 2 Kings 4, the story of the widow in our passage reminds us that, that, that God's goodness is demonstrated and, and that he meets our needs, our daily needs. And then we also see his care and compassion for those that are left vulnerable. Next in our passage, we see the Shunammite woman. In verse 8, it says that there came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunam, where there was a prominent woman, and she pers persuaded him to eat food. And so it was, as often as he passed by, he turned 
in there to eat food. This is what we're talking about. This is the best map I could come up with that would show you where Shunem is in, in location of Jerusalem and Mount Carmel. Our text continues and says that, that this woman said to her husband in verse 9, he says, Behold, now I perceive that this is a holy man of God passing by us continually. Please let us make a little walled upper chamber and let us set a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand. And it shall be when he comes to us that he can turn in there. So for our notes this morning, we see God's goodness towards spiritual leaders. God's goodness towards spiritual leaders. I want you to look at that point, and I want you to interpret it two different ways. We're going to talk about that. In verses 9 and 10, it shows us God's goodness towards Elisha. And this is true. But I also want you to in interpret this point as God's goodness to his church by giving us spiritual leaders. Ephesians chapter 4 is pretty clear. That God gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. But, but first in our passage, we want to see how God cares and provides for the one whom he called to be a prophet. God's goodness, God's goodness and provision for Elisha here comes to him by a woman who loved and feared God. Look at verse 9 again. It said that the woman perceived that Elisha was a holy man. That, that word perceived here, it means to experience. It means to become instructed in. So during the times that she would interact with Elisha, she began to learn that he was a man of God set apart to preach the word. So this woman is put into a position by God to use her means and her giftedness to bring goodness to Elijah. She provided him with a comfortable place to stay and rest during his travels. You know, Romans 12 is very clear to us that we are to use our spiritual gifts in serving the body of Christ. Look with me here at Romans 12. It says, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the portion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who le leads with diligent, diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. It continues on, and it just talks about how, how our love for one another needs to be without hypocrisy. We're to abhor what is evil. We need to cling to that which is good. We need to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. We need to rejoice in hope, persevere in tribulation, be devoted in prayer, but look to verse 13. We need to be contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. So we are to use our giftedness that God has graced us with to serve each other in the body, but God also desires that we serve and highly value those who watch over our souls because spiritual leaders are God's gift of his goodness to the church. First Thessalonians chapter 5 says this. He says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over, your, over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. The word appreciate here, it, it, it means to know our shepherds deeply. It means to be respectful of them. It means to value their service. In verse 13, it says that we are to esteem them very highly. This, this phrase calls for limitless respect. 
and I would hope and I would I would venture to say that I can say that here at Countryside we do that with our pastoral staff I would not going to put Vikram on the spot here and ask him if we're doing that I would hope that that he would walk away and say yes that's what Countryside is all about God's goodness to his church is giving us spiritual leaders who care for our souls God's goodness to spiritual leaders is coming from the church coming alongside them and serving them God has called pastor teachers and set them apart for an important work of leading his church therefore we are to lovingly acknowledge their ministry their labors greatly respect them speak well of them encourage them and give our best for them next in our passage we see God's goodness towards a barren woman God's goodness towards a barren woman look at verse 11 it says one day Elisha came there and he turned to the upper chamber and rested and then Elisha said to Gehazi his servant he said call this Shunammite and when he had called her she stood before him and Elisha says to his servant say now to her behold you have been careful for uh, for us with all this care what can I do for you would you be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the army and basically what he's saying there can I speak on your behalf to the king so that he might be aware of your goodness or to the captain army of your goodness and she answers very humbly and she says I, I live among my own people and what she's saying there is is that I'm really content I have everything I need and so Elisha said what then is to be done for her and then his servant answered and said truly she has no son her, her husband is old and then Elisha called uh, said call her and so when the servant had called her she stood in the doorway again and he said at this season next year you will embrace a son and she said no my lord oh man of God do not lie to your maidservant okay so the indication here is this in her deep down longing she wanted a son that was her hope for her life that's what's indicated here in verse 16 she's saying don't toy with me don't say anything that's not going to be true don't say anything that's going to get my hopes up and then in verse 17 the woman conceived and bore a son at that season the next year as Elisha had said to her you know we see God's God is always good and we see his goodness displayed in this woman by giving her a son something that she's longed for however there are some and perhaps here this morning who are here who long to have children but God has not allowed it and we need to remember that that no matter the circumstances in one's life God is always good his plans are always better God never promises that we will receive all the things that we would desire but God is good nonetheless there are many here who have children and God has promised us or has not promised us that our children would come to faith in Christ he's not promised us that our children will will repent of their sins and walk faithfully with God and some of you might be struggling with that even now in your life but nonetheless God is good God very God's very nature is good he is good he has been good and he will always be good he cannot be anything but good you know we live in a sinful fallen world and we see the results of sin daily but God will always be good so good to us as we've been learning these last couple of Sundays with Pastor Tom that there's gonna come a day 
where this sin in this world will no longer be. We next see in our passage the grief of this woman, the Shunammite's son, point three. In verse 18, it says, When the child was grown, the day came when he went out to his father, to the reapers, and he said to his father, My head, my head. And he said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. Verse 20, When the servant had taken him and brought him to his mother, he, had sat her, her, uh, sat, he sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. You know, this, this passage here shows us the tender love of a mother of her only child. He was still young enough to sit in her lap, but there he died. And I'm sure, possibly, her dreams died with him. But even in the midst of tragedy, God is good. God is always good. Many times our circumstances overshadow our ability to see God's goodness. When we forget that even during times of tragedy that God is good, we tend to become bitter and we begin, tend to become angry and hopeless. And that's exactly what this happens to this woman in our passage our text seems to indicate that the, that the woman does not even tell her husband what has happened to their son, but she quickly leaves her home in search for Elisha. And then in verse 27, she finds him. In verse 27, when she came to Elisha, she caught hold of his feet, and Elisha's servant came near to push her away, but the man of God, Elisha, said, Let her alone, for her soul is troubled within her. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Verse 28 reveals her bitterness. She speaks and she says this to Elisha. She says, did I ask for a son from my Lord? Indicating, no, I didn't. I didn't want this. She says, did I not say, do not deceive me? And she's just basically said, I told you not to get my hopes up in order for them to be dashed later on. So in the midst of her grief, she's forgotten God's good gifts that he gives to us daily. And the application here for us is that, you know, bad things will happen in this fallen world. But we need to discipline our minds so that we might meditate on the goodness of God when bad things do happen. God is good towards us, even in this fallen world that we live in. We just need to choose to see it. When we're bitter with God about something, it could be just life in general, it could be the struggles of a marriage, it could be troubles with children, it could be loneliness of singleness, it could be the lack of income, or it could be something else. Whatever is in need, whatever we need, or whatever happens to us, I should say, we need to quickly meditate on God's goodness. Psalm 103 says this, says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Let me ask you this, and I'm looking for a response you know, in times of trouble in your life, what are some of God's benef benefits that you meditate on to help you see past those circumstances? What benefits from God do you think of when you go through times of trouble? He saved us, our salvation. Yeah. Yeah, given us promises. He's sovereign. He will never leave us or forsake us. Yeah, the unexplained peace that comes through these trying times. Absolutely. 
in the midst of this psalm, in verse 3, it says, these are some of those benefits. God pardons all our iniquities. Uh, he heals all our diseases. And I think that last part of verse 3 is speaking of which of our spiritual diseases. He, he heals our sin because this whole passage talks about redemption. Verse 4 says, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with ten, uh, steadfast love and, com and compassion. In verse 11, it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And then it goes on and says, As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Just as the, uh, a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. You know, these are helpful things to, to help us understand and remind ourselves who we are as we stand before a holy, majestic God, even in the times of trouble, even in the times of circumstances that are trying. You know, when God, by His grace, helps me to refocus on Him and His character, when I regain an eternal perspective, the situation I'm involved in becomes very, very small, and my God becomes very, very big. And so tragedy in this life is to be expected. And in, in order to see God's goodness during these times, we need to be disciplining our minds even now and be rehearsing even now on God's goodness. Now, don't get me wrong. In times of trouble, in times of, of, of circumstances that are just not favorable, God does desire that we cry out to Him and we cry out to Him with our sorrows. But we need to be ready, as 1 Thessalonians tells us, to be thankful in everything. In verse 29... Elisha tells his servant to gird up his loins and take, his, take Elisha's staff from his hand and go to the child. He says, go in such a hurry that if you meet somebody on the way, don't stop to answer them. And then take this staff of his, in verse 29, and lay it on the, the lad's face, he says. And so the servant obeys. He does what he was instructed to do. But there was no response from the boy. If you drop down to verse 32, it says that when Elisha came to the house, behold, the lad was dead and laid on his bed. So Elisha entered the, the room, he shut the door, and he prayed to the Lord. And he went up and laid on the child. He put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands, and he stretched himself on him, and the flesh of the child become, became warm. And then he returned and walked in the house once back and forth and went up and stretched himself on him. And the lad sneezed seven times and the lad opened his eyes. Elisha called to his servant and he says, call the Shunammite. So he called her and then she came to him and said, take up your son. Then she went and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground and she took up her son, and went out. And so here we see God's goodness in a resurrection. God's goodness in a resurrection. There are other places in the Bible where we read of people being raised from the dead, <clears throat> back to life. And eventually these people who were raised back to life, who were raised from the dead, they eventually died again. And when we read these events, we should be reminded of God's goodness of a resurrection recorded for us that changed the destiny of God's people forever. Namely, the resurrection of his own son. You know, all these resurrections that we read of are foreshadowing the resurrection to come that would impact the lives of everyone who would believe. The resurrection of the God-man Jesus 
is the essential element to the gospel. Yes, of course, Jesus had to die on the cross. First, he had to suffer the punishment due for our sins and bear the curse of our rebellion. But Jesus also had to rise from the dead. He had to, to prove his victory over death by coming back to life and thus demonstrating that God the Father has accepted his sacrifice for our sins. We're reminded of this in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says that I deliver to you as of first importance that I, I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then as you continue reading in verse 13, it says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith also in vain. But if we have, but if we, and if we have hoped in Christ in this life, we are all men most to be pitied. But that's not us because there is a resurrection. Jesus Christ's sacrifice on our behalf gives us an understanding. His sacrifice and his resurrection tells us that God puts his stamp of approval on what he did on the cross. Those who choose not to repent and believe will also have a resurrection of their own, as Pastor Tom has been teaching us. But it will be a resurrection to an eternal damnation. So those of us in Christ, every time we read of these resurrections in the, in the Old Testament or the ones that we see in the New Testament, it's a promise of what God has done for us. It's a foreshadowing of what Christ has done for us with his own resurrection. And as we close our lesson this morning, I've, I've grouped the last two events together, the poisonous stew and the feeding of a of hundred men. If you look at verse 38, it says that Elisha returned to Gilgal and there was a famine in the land and the sons of the prophets were sitting before him and he said to his servant, put on a large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. So someone gets up out of the field, goes to the field in verse 39 uh, to gather herbs, found a wild vine and, and gathered it from its lap uh, full of wild gourds. And he came and he sliced it into the pot of the stew, but they did not know what they were putting in there, what these gourds were. And so they poured it out uh, for the men to eat. And as they were eating the stew, they cried out and said, O man of God, there is death in this pot. And they were unable to eat. Elisha said in verse 41, he says, bring me meal or bring me some flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, pour it out for the people so that they may eat. And they did, and there was no harm in the pot. So, when I looked at this and I was studying it, what turned out to be a potluck <laughs> ended up being a tough luck. So, And the point of this story is not that Elisha was some master cook who just won an episode of Iron Chef, okay? The point of this story is not that meal flour is an antidote for poison, so husbands, don't go there with your wife's cook. Oh, we're not going to go there, okay? The point of this story is this. I'll come back to it. Let's look at verse 42. All right, this is where I need Vikram, okay? There's a man that came from Baalishelisha. How is that, Vikram? Where are you? Is that good? And brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And he said, give them to the people that they may eat. And his attendant said, what? Will I set this before a hundred men? And he said, give it to the people that they may eat. And, and they shall eat and have some left over. In verse 44, so he set it before them and they ate. 
and they had some left over according to the word of the Lord. And so what was not enough to feed a hundred men soon became more than enough to fill empty stomachs. And as we look through this, this chapter 4 and as we've studied through First and Second Kings, we see lots of miracles that take place. And there are many lessons that we learn. One is simply that, that God loves us and he will take care of us. And this is absolutely true. This is the practical doctrine of the providence of God. The same God who made the heavens and the earth will provide for our daily needs. And all the miracles that we read of, of this morning and all those that we've studied in First and Second Kings show us that God is not only concerned about our physical well-being, but he's also concerned about our spiritual well-being. And what's important here is that not that God will take care of us physically and that we see these miracles, but what's important in this one is that God's goodness to us is this. God chooses to reveal himself to sinful man. That's what all these miracles are all about. These miracles are more than just God wanting to take care of us physically. These miracles are to reveal his love towards those of us who are lost. The fact that all creation is crying out to a lost people that there is a God and that he has provided a way for us to know him, to be redeemed by him, this is what is an amazing story. We all deserve God's wrath. Ephesians 2 reminds us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, which we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But verse 4, but God, but God in his goodness to us, he reveals himself to us, but God being rich in his mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So the question here is, what is the takeaway? What is the application? What is my challenge to you this morning? Well, I need for you to take your Bibles once more and turn to Psalm 145. Turn to Psalm 145. And we'll close out our time looking at this, this passage. But this is my, my challenge to you. You know, as I, as I close this lesson, I want you to follow along as I read this psalm. But my challenge to you personally is to take this psalm this week, every day. Every day this week, read this psalm on your own. Meditate on the wonders of God and be reminded of the goodness of Him in your life. Let this psalm this week be your personal worship of God so that it might remind you of how good He is to you. Follow along as I read. Verse 1, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall, shall praise your works to another. And shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. 
The Lord is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and great in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. His mercies are over all his works. All your works shall th give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of your glory, to, of your kingdom, and they talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand, and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desires of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and he will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praises of his Lord and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Pray with me. Oh, gracious God, might we be that type of person. We are so aware of your goodness to us, and we are so thankful for your daily provision for our life. Help us, O oh Lord, this week to meditate upon you and meditate on your goodness God, I pray right now for the individual who's struggling through life's tough circumstances. Oh God, might they rejoice in your goodness and see what it is that you desire to do in their life as a result of what they're going through. Encourage them, give them hope, give them steadfast love towards you and let them praise your name forever. Father, I pray for the rest of us. I pray this morning that we would just be a men and women who just love to praise you and meditate daily on your glorious goodness to us. Might you be exalted in our thoughts, in our deeds, in our words throughout this week. For your glory, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.